Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. We are joined today with Lucy, who's going to teach us all about blue carbon today. Hi, Lucy. How are you doing? Hi, Joe. Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Really pleased to be on here. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited that you're going to be on this podcast today. I'm really excited to learn all about blue carbon and about what you do and how you're studying this. So do you want to kind of give us a little bit of an introduction to who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So um, I've just gone into the third year of my PhD, which is actually quite terrifying. I don't know where the time's gone there, but um, my PhD is in marine and environmental science, and that's at the University of York in the UK. So my academic background to kind of get to the the position I am now has been relatively straightforward. So I did an undergraduate degree in marine biology. I went on to a master's in marine environmental management, and that's kind of led into, yeah, into the PhD that I'm in at the moment. What made you want to pursue marine and environmental biology? Was that something you knew you wanted to pursue from when you were a young kid, or did you find it later on in life? You know, that's, it's, genuinely something I think for as long as I can remember it's something I've wanted to do um it seems a little bit strange because I'm actually from one of the the furthest points in land in the UK um I think growing <laughs> up <laughs> yeah growing up my dad was a sailor so we did spend um quite a lot quite a lot of time at the coast actually so I think that might be where I kind of gained my passion um but I think like a lot of young kids who are interested in nature and animals, for a long time I wanted to be a vet. And um, this is this is a little bit strange, but I then, when I was about eight years old, I got into swimming with my local swimming club. And being eight years old, I wanted to combine all my favourite passions into a career and what I wanted to do in the future. And obviously swimming and water and animals, it kind of led me to fish. Um, that was something at the time my mum thought was very strange, but... Um, yeah, it's turned into a, a lifelong affair. I've never actually worked on fish, but um, the marine environment, certainly. And it's it's really nice because it's something that my family as well, as well have become really passionate about. Um, so, yeah, it has been something that's been in the making really for a long time. I love that. I always find when I ask that question, it's like either one or the other. Like people are either no, I just kind of randomly found it later on in life or no, I've known since I was a kid that this is what I want to do. And I love that. I feel like a lot of us go through that vet stage where we're like, we love animals, vets. And then we're all kind of like, "Mm, actually, never mind. (laughs) And then find this. So I think it's really awesome. So you did your like undergrad in marine and then a master's of environmental biology. And then what brought you to your PhD, this PhD topic? Yeah, so it's, um, it's actually... For the, for the first part of my PhD, because it is a lot more environmental science than my background in marine biology, um, I found that quite a strange transition. But it really came from, um, so actually, on, after my undergrad, knowing for all them years that I wanted to do marine biology, um, when I finished my undergrad, it was sort of like, wow, marine biology is a huge field. I didn't know what I wanted to do within that, even after the undergrad. Um, so it was only really in my um, my master's that I kind of honed in on what my real interests were. Um, yeah, and it was during that time I worked um, on rocky shores and salt marshes, and I developed an absolute fascination with ecosystem services. Um, and I yeah, I fell back in love with the coastline coastline around me. 
so that's one of the things um particularly like I had a huge passion for turtles marine turtles like specifically green turtles and they're obviously quite a tropical species um and I have with my studies and various research little research um you know chapters of my life I have been out to some amazing places like the Maldives Sri Lanka um Malta and the Greek islands to do work there but yeah it was in my masters where I really thought you know I think it's actually the coastline around me that I'm really interested in so I've stayed in um in temperate environments here in the UK um but another thing is that I've always been um really fascinated by climate change as a research topic so it's nice to kind of actually work in in climate change solutions and what I like to call like my research area is a bit of ocean optimism so that's kind of how I got into what I'm doing now. Nice so what is your PhD exactly what are you looking at? Yeah so I'm looking at um, climate change mitigation in coastal ecosystems so specifically I'm working on salt marshes and what I'm really trying to do is understand what's driving variations in blue carbon stocks over spatial and temporal scales. Um, so I'm hoping by gaining an understanding of what is really driving these differences and the amount of carbon that's stored between different salt marshes, I can kind of contribute to the field in a way that can help us better manage these ecosystems for their climate change fighting ability. Cool. That's really cool. That's a lot of, it's a little overwhelming when you first hear it. <laughs> kind of like, a, oh, cool. It's, it's one of them, um, you know, when like when you first start a new research project, it's, the possibilities are endless. You could go anywhere with it. And it's, yeah, I think what I'm trying to achieve is quite ambitious, but, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what I do. <laughs> we'll see where it ends up. Yeah. So for those who may not know, what is blue carbon? Yeah, of course. So um, the, the actual definition of it is just simply carbon that's been captured and stored by marine and coastal ecosystems. So the fact that it's blue carbon simply represents, you know, that these are coastal marine um, water ecosystems. Um, when we talk about it, we're really referring to three coastal powerhouses. So the three ecosystems that do the most work in terms of storing and capturing carbon. And these are mangroves, salt marshes, and seagrass meadows. So those three systems are absolutely amazing at capturing and storing carbon. Um, one of my favorite facts in the field is that together, those three systems only occupy around 0.2% of the ocean surface area, but they contribute 50% of carbon burial in marine sediments. So they're really working like punching well above their weight in terms of carbon storage. Um, wow, yeah. Um, one of the other things I think is quite interesting about them is that, um, you know, traditionally we think of uh, natural carbon stores as being terrestrial forests. That's been the way it's been for a long time. Um, but actually these blue carbon ecosystems, they can store, like capture and store around 35 to 50 times the amount of carbon um, in the same sized area of terrestrial forest. And as well, they, they can store this carbon for millions of years rather than um, you know, hundreds of years, again, in these terrestrial forests. Um, I think with blue carbon, the, the fields actually exploded in recent years. Um, so the term yeah. blue carbon was actually coined, um, I think back in 2009, so just over 10 years ago. 
but it's only really in the in recent years that this this field has become quite widespread both um, within science and also within the media and the public um, so just as, as an example of that I, I actually started my PhD towards the end of 2018 um, it's one of them things you do isn't it when you when you start working on a new research topic or an area of, of interest you tend to google it quite a lot um, you know just the term just <laughs> just to see what comes up and um, yeah back when I started I googled blue carbon and you know it was pictures of I don't even understand what this is but fiber wraps for cars so different colors um, of cars and things like that um, but now like if you google blue carbon now the first hits are always coastal ecosystems climate change mitigation I think that was really quite reflective of how much this um, field has come on recently. Um, so I think with blue carbon, um, particularly in the field of marine science, people are becoming a lot more familiar with the concept of it um, and certainly are understanding that these coastal ecosystems um, are really good at climate change mitigation, but perhaps um, there's still not a widespread understanding of why they're so good. Um, so it'd be quite cool if I could tell you why that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us. Yeah. So, um, kind of break it down into three main reasons. Um, so firstly, um, blue carbon ecosystems. So our coastal vegetated habitats like mangroves, salt marshes, and seagrasses, they are super productive. So in order to support their fast growth and reproduction rates, they're capturing lots of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to use in photosynthesis. Um, and they tend to produce a lot more energy than they actually utilize. So that energy is stored away. Um, secondly, they're depositional environments. Um, so you might have seen, um, I think they're called wave chambers where it tends to show how mangroves can function in coastal protection. I don't know if you've seen them where, um, just these little see-through boxes where there's a wave simulation and then there's you know some vegetation representing mangroves and um, coastal development behind, if you've seen them. I haven't uh, seen them, but that sounds really cool. It's that kind of principle though. So, um, you know, the same way that they function in coastal protection. So as tidal flows coming in, the vegetation um, of these habitats actually slows down tidal flow and it's the suspended sediment that's normally held up in fast flowing water that can then settle once that tidal flow is reduced. And it tends to settle, um, for example, on the salt marsh surface. And that sediment can actually be really rich in carbon. And of course, other things like kelp detritus can be brought in um, on the tides as well and settle on the existing surface. surface. Um, and that carbon's rapidly buried below the ground as more and more suspended sediments dropped on top of the marsh surface. Um, and then the third reason is just that um, in complete opposite to terrestrial forests, um, the majority of carbon in these ecosystems is actually stored in below ground sediments. So for salt marshes in particular, it's um, up to 98% of the carbon stored below ground. And that's why it could be stored for millions of years rather than um, trees that store the majority of their carbon um, within their biomass above the ground, um, which is only stored for around about 100 years. And the main difference there is that the, the below ground sediments of our blue carbon ecosystems, 
because they're coastal, they're absolutely waterlogged. Um, and that creates these conditions that are really low in oxygen. And that actually prevents microbes from coming along and breaking down carbon and releasing it into the atmosphere. Wow. That is so cool. <laughs> I hope it makes sense. I know I, um, I know it can be a bit complicated to go yeah. through, but... Yeah, no, definitely complicated, but it, I think it made sense. It's so interesting that salt marshes, which are not something you think about every day, like they're... Mm not something you see or think about every day, but they play such a large role yeah, totally. in maintaining the climate. That is so insane. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think um, often with salt marshes and I guess, you know, with mangroves as well in tropical climates, they are sometimes perceived as these just kind of swampy wastelands that no one really, really cares about. But yeah, they're really, really awesome <laughs> ecosystems. They really are. They they're so complex, mm. but so cool. <laughs> so why is blue carbon and this exchange something that the everyday person should care about, not just a scientist or someone who's interested in it? Why should just everyone mm. care about it? Yeah, um, I mean, of course, the main reason is that we really want to curb climate change, um, but I think particularly why these ecosystems are so fascinating is not only because they can be really important carbon sinks by storing a lot of that carbon, but it's also how quickly they can actually shift into being carbon sources. So ecosystems that do actually emit carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere um, and contribute towards climate change. So one of the things and we touched upon it there, how talking about how these ecosystems are sometimes perceived as kind of swampy wastelands, but, um, since the 1940s, we've lost about 25% of mangroves, salt marshes, and seagrasses. I think that might actually be quite a conservative estimate. So we really are seeing a lot of damage and loss um, to these ecosystems. And they're among some of the most threatened um, ecosystems in the world, actually. Um, I think why that's really? so important, particularly for blue carbon and climate change, is that any damage to those ecosystems, as I said before, it can it can shift them into being carbon sources, um, releasing carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere. So, for example, that could be to do with plant damage. Um, so the plants aren't able to capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. If they're damaged, they can't um, capture carbon or sediment that's been brought in on the tides. And then also um, any damage to these ecosystems can tend to disturb the sediment. And that, um, that aerates the sediment, it, let, it lets a lot of oxygen come into the sediment. And like I mentioned before, uh, the microbes, if they've got a good supply of oxygen, they're gonna be a lot better at breaking down that carbon and releasing it back into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. Um, so I guess for the everyday person, um, I'm not sure if you've seen David Attenborough's new documentary, The a Life on Our Planet. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, one of the, um, well, I think the most important quote that's come from that, and I absolutely love this, is that we need to take care of nature so that nature will take care of us. I guess that that's a real main reason. I love that. I love that outlook. <laughs> yeah, it's a great quote, isn't it? It is. And it's really, it puts it into perspective, puts it into perspective really quickly about how like 
you don't realize the damage you're doing sometimes just by doing something so small. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's easy to forget that little changes can lead up to big changes. Yeah, definitely. So for your PhD, you've kind of started on two different chapters, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So let's talk about the first chapter for a little bit. What's the first chapter about? Yeah, so this is, um, it's looking into the effect sea level rise can have on um, blue carbon stocks in salt marshes. Um, So I think traditionally, sea level rise has been seen as one of the, the greatest threats to coastal ecosystems through things like um, erosion and coastal squeeze. Um, so really, you'd, you'd expect, you know, if we're talking about sea level rise, you'd expect it to be quite a ne- to have quite a negative consequence on uh, blue carbon stocks and potentially even shift the ecosystems into being carbon sources. Um, but previous research into sea level rise and coastal ecosystems tend, tended to view salt marshes as quite, as quite static systems. Um, but in actual fact, we know that they're really dynamic and they do have this amazing capacity to keep pace with sea level rise by building up vertically. And again, that's that's all to do with the delivery of sediment, um, trapping sediment and building up in response to sea level rise. And that's also why they function so well in coastal protection. I mean, of course, there is there's a certain extent that that would work too. And there is always going to be a threshold. Yeah. Um, you know, a sea level rise that, that salt marshes aren't able to keep up with. And it does also apply on um, a decent supply of sediment. Um, but for this chapter, and it, it might seem a complete opposite of what you'd expect, but we're actually testing the hypothesis that sea level rise can actually enhance blue carbon in salt marshes. Um, so salt marsh ecosystems, they're, they're intertidal. Um, they maintain a certain elevation above mean tide level. So as sea levels are rising, it frees up this vertical space um, that's available for potential sediment to accumulate. And that's known as vertical vertical accommodation space. Um, Now with with sea level rise, the marshes are gonna experience a much longer period where they're covered by the tides, where they're inundated in water. And that obviously means that there's more chance for suspended sediment to be deposited on the surface. And as I said before, that sediment can actually be really rich in carbon. So it kind of gives rise to that theory that sea level rise can actually enhance blue carbon accumulation in salt marshes. So how are you guys testing this? Are you just looking at how the sea level has changed in different salt marshes or how are you like physically looking at this? Yeah, so it's it's really quite an interesting one actually because it's um it's really quite an interdisciplinary chapter. Um, so my my supervisor is actually um, a sea level scientist, and over over his career really he's um he's collected cores from various different salt marshes across the globe, and um, he's worked out quite detailed sea level reconstructions. So. I probably won't go into it too much because this is definitely not an area of my expertise, but I think I find it absolutely fascinating how they they can reconstruct sea level. Um, So one of the things they do in the sea level group at my university is look at forams um, or forami, I can't say that word, foraminifera, yeah, we'll say forams. 
and <laughs> sorry um much like zonation on a rocky shore um different species of forams occupy a different niche so a different area within you know the tidal range whether that's low mid or high marsh um so what they can do by by working down cores um so sediment cores that have been taken from the salt marshes they look at the species of forams they pick them out they identify them and they can actually tell what the sea level was at a particular point in time um which i think is fascinating um so yeah we've got um we've got all them cores so it's about eight sites around the world i think i've got five in the northern hemisphere and three in the southern hemisphere um so my job then because the sea level reconstruction has already been done i'm just measuring carbon content at particular stages down the core and then we'll compare that um carbon content with the known sea level rise at the time and see if there's changes um over the past however many years um we have the data for so for example one of my salt marshes i'm working with about a meter and that meter represents uh the past 500 years so we can really look back in time and you know identify when when the major rises in sea level have, have happened so obviously i think we know that's you know from quite recently in particular it's it's um <laughs> this is interesting how it kind of combines with what you're doing so mm. like quote unquote well because like obviously it's not good but it like it's mm. interesting how they coincide so much when you wouldn't really think of salt marshes as something that's affected by sea level rise off mm. the top of your head yeah yeah definitely yeah, no, it's, I, I think it's, it should be a really fascinating chapter, actually. I'm really looking forward to, to finding out a bit more about that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it when it's done. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> What's your second chapter on? Yeah, so this, this is more of um, a management chapter. So um, for the second one, rather than testing a hypothesis like sea level rise enhances blue carbon, what I'm doing is I'm looking at restored sites in the UK only um, and looking into what environmental drivers um, are really creating spatial variation in blue carbon stocks between those restored marshes. Um, so, you know, the hope, the hope from that chapter really then is that, you know, we gain this knowledge, we understand, you know, what site specific variables are really having that impact on spatial variation in blue carbon stocks and hopefully if we you know if we find out it's a particular factor say i don't know particle size then we know where to target future restoration efforts to try and uh, prioritize climate change mitigation mm, cool so what what are the different environmental drivers you're kind of considering or is there like specific ones you're considering yeah so i mean it's really quite varied so there's there's um when when you get stuck into the literature you realize just how complex these these ecosystems are and how so many different factors can really affect them and consequently their blue carbon stocks but um yeah yeah i guess the main drivers i'm looking at really you can kind of break it down into ecological um sedimentary and physical factors um so for the vegetation um well the ecological factors i'm primarily looking at vegetation so um, 
you know, different different um, salt marsh plants can have really quite different <laughs> salt marsh plants. Um, you know, depending on their structure and their productivity, they can really affect the amount of carbon that's coming into the ecosystem. Um, so that's why we're looking at quite a lot of different things to do with salt marsh vegetation. So, you know, um, more simple things down to community composition. So looking at the percentage cover of different species, um, vegetation height, above ground biomass, root biomass, um, some things like that. So yeah, as I was trying trying to say before, the um, you know different plant structures are going to have be completely different at um, you know trapping carbon from from the from the tide. Um, so that's why we're really quite focusing on vegetation. Um, then the sedimentary factors, I guess the main one from that is looking at particle size. Um, so there was actually a study from Australia not so long ago, and they found that um, carbon stocks were much better preserved and protected when sediments were really fine grained. So, uh, for example, muds and silts, they're really fine grained sediments when you compare to things like sand, which is a lot more coarse, so that the particle sizes, um, yeah, they're a lot bigger. Um, so that kind of, that has an effect on the amount of air spaces within the sediment. So for those fine grain sediments, so, so muddy sediments, um, there's less air spaces, which again will affect the microbial community and how well they can use oxygen to break down the carbon. Um, yeah, so it's all to do with that. So I think that that could be a major, major finding from our research as well. Um, and then we look at the physical factors. So things like inundation period and suspended sediment supply. Um, yeah, the reason I find that one a bit funny is because my, um, my equipment didn't work. So I'm gonna have to go back out and do that again. Oh no. Oh, luckily my field works only in the UK. So it's, it's not too much of a big deal, but. Um, so you're good, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, inundation period, like, you know, really similar to what I've been talking about in chapter one, uh, the more time the marsh is inundated and covered by the tides, the more time there is for sediment that can be rich in carbon to be deposited on the um, on the marsh surface. Um, mm. So it's expecting that to have quite a big um, quite a big effect as well. But they're they're really some of the main ones. But there's quite a few of them. And I guess if you like, you can't really look at them exclusively, like you're going to start to look at one and that's going to be interacting with oh. other ones and you're going to, it's going to lead you to other ones. Like it's never really a vacuum. You're always getting kind of um, mixed results kind of thing. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. You find, especially when you're, you're starting to work on the statistics and stuff, you realize just how correlated so many of these variables are. Um, <laughs> and like right. things that you wouldn't even think of too. Yeah. Yeah, completely. But I guess like that can be quite interesting in itself, can't it? It would just be, um, gosh, that's a thing with um, research, isn't it? You just, you find yourself going down so many rabbit holes. Um, yeah, you really <laughs> do. You start looking at one thing and you end up, looking at something completely different yeah totally and then you you know you start to realize how much you don't know that but I guess that that's a sign of getting to know your field quite well is realizing how much more there is to know and that you need to know but yeah that that'll be good fun I think <laughs> 
I think so. <laughs> so what does a typical day, like what kind of field work are you doing to gather your data? What does a kind of typical day look like? Yeah, so I um, I am, I would say I'm primarily a field scientist, which I, when I said at the beginning of, um, of our chat is I, I did struggle a bit with transitioning into this PhD. Um, Cause like, yeah, I, was like, I am really a field scientist and there hasn't been a great deal of field work in this PhD. Um, so for example, my first chapter, um, my supervisor had already collected all the material I needed. Um, and so a day in the life of me really is primarily in the labs, um, which is something I'm not, not overly confident with, or at least I wasn't at the start. Um, but I found I've actually come to find it to be quite therapeutic actually working in the labs. Um, yeah, apart from, um, you can go on autopilot quite easily. When you're doing the same <laughs> the same measurements over and over again and that's when um really quite silly mistakes happen and delay your work a bit but um yeah with the field work um absolutely love it that's that's really where i enjoy being and we're actually we were quite lucky to head into the field in um july this year um so over there we you know the main thing we're doing is taking cores so taking these sediment cores, only short ones, because that's really where we're focusing, um, you know, our carbon content measurements is on the below ground sediment. And um, yeah, I'm quite lucky because vegetation, salt marsh vegetation ID anyway, is something I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with. Um, so I tend to, to end up being, being the one who does a lot of the, yeah, the vegetation ID, which means I don't have to do as much as the, the really kind of mucky sediment work and salt marshes can really, <laughs> yeah, they can really smell. Um, <laughs> so it's quite nice to, to stick with the vegetation. You can get some bad smells on them. Oh goodness, yeah, it's bad. I um, I took back some of the the vegetation samples into my department, um, into the labs, and I had to do it over the weekend with all the vents on because. You know, I locked myself in this room so no one else was exposed to the smell. And someone nipped in and they're like, the the words they used to describe the smell was fishy and rotten. And that just sums it up completely. Oh, no. <laughs> Eggy as well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, having said that, I, I definitely don't mind getting a bit stuck in and getting a bit muddy. It's, it's all part of the fun, really. So are you looking at sediment samples from only the UK or do you look at, are you comparing them to other, other areas? Yeah. So for, for the um, second chapter in particular, which is looking at um, variation in blue carbon stocks between restored marshes, that's, that's primarily just the UK. Um, yeah. We're looking at um, three restored sites and then three nearby natural sites kind of like as a, as a control um but i think it, it gets tricky with restoration when you start to look um at the wider picture because you know you're also comparing different ways the marshes were restored um you know as well different time periods in which they were restored so the reason i picked um the sites i have done um is they were all restored um over quite quite a similar time period so I think they're actually some of the oldest restored sites in the UK. Um, the first one I believe was 
in about 1991, so quite a while ago, and then the other two were 1995. Um, and then that's another thing is that um, all of these sites has, have been restored in the exact same way. Um, so in the UK, the main oh. method we have for salt marsh restoration is called manage realignment. And I believe that's similar across most of Europe as well. And it's it's the most simple thing. It's, the, it's known as the deliberate breaching of coastal defences. So whether that's an, an embankment or something like that, they'll just breach um, a small section within that embankment that allows a lot of um, salt water to flood in. And that's just how the, the salt marshes colonize that area. Um, sorry, I should say that they tend to be agricultural fields um, are breached. That's really cool that you're kind of comparing all these different different ones that were maintained the same way and mm. how even though they were treated the same, you're going to see different results from them. Yeah, I think I think that could be really interesting. And um, as I said from this chapter, I really do hope that we, you know, we do start to pick out what, you know, what the major drivers for these differences are. Um, it could be really quite important for future restoration. And I think it's actually really topical at the moment because um, 2021 to 2030 has been designated as the United Nations Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. Um, you can, I'm not sure about elsewhere, but particularly like here in the UK, um, coastal ecosystem restoration has become huge again, really quite recently. Um, and particularly for salt marshes, whilst, whilst um, we restore them usually for um, coastal protection or biodiversity enhancement, um, climate change mitigation is always mentioned as a co-benefit. And I feel like we really, you know, if we're saying this, we really need to understand, you know, how well, how well these restored sites do actually store carbon and what we should really be looking for, um, you know, what kind of environment environmental variables are going to drive or really prioritize that climate change mitigation. So what have you guys kind of found so far with that? Yeah, so... Um, with like the chapters you're looking at, yeah. Yeah, this, this is not me trying to be really elusive or secretive about my research. It's simply that I just, I haven't really got much data yet. Um, yeah. Um, I'm working quite hard in the lab at the moment, and that's that's why I'm, it's really quite daunting that I'm in third year. I don't know where this time has gone, um, or what I've been doing with it. But um, one thing, <laughs> I'm sure everyone feels like that. Or I, most people I speak to do anyway, so that's quite reassuring. Um, but one thing, I've done, um, you know, a bit of ex explore, um, exploring a bit of data analysis for my first chapter. And we are we are actually finding that that our hypothesis is true. So we are we are finding that um, you know in three of the sites we've looked at that sea level rise is actually enhancing blue carbon accumulation. So that's quite exciting. Um, I'm not sure yet about chapter two. I haven't got that far, but one chapter at a time. Don't worry about chapter two just yet. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> I need to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all like it's overwhelming to be in a PhD sometimes 
Mm. And it's just kind of you got to remind yourself that you're you're doing it. You're gonna get there, and it's no there's no hurry. Yeah, totally. I think one of oh gosh, I'm gonna go with a phrase again, but I I think this one's so true that you know with a PhD it is it is a marathon, it's not a sprint. Um, particularly compared yeah. to when you can have quite um like masters in particular are so intense. Um. But yeah, you do, you know, you invest a lot of time into a PhD over a longer time period. So yeah, definitely remembering that it is it is a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> it is, and it should be, because if you're trying to sprint through your PhD and get through it as fast as you can, like, are you really, is it really reliable research? Is mm-hmm. it really something you care about? Is it really worth doing if you just want to do it to, so you have a PhD? Yeah, totally. And as you say, like you can you can really lose the passion there in your subject if you're just trying to wrestle Absolutely. through it. Mm. So you mentioned earlier that you do some educational outreach. Is that an important thing for you to share? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um I well, again we like we've we've talked about this already, but just the whole way that these these kind of ecosystems are perceived, you know coastal wasteland you know a bit swampy they're not particularly pleasant um and I think it's true that we'll only really protect what we love which is also we'll only really love what we understand um you know and once once people do start to begin to understand the power of these ecosystems uh they're they're really quite shocked at actually how amazing their local marsh is not necessarily just in terms of the fact they can fight climate change all of the other things like we've talked about like you know they they can support so much biodiversity uh, they can protect our coastlines so everything like that and you find that people's attitudes really really change towards protecting and restoring these habitats massively when they understand just how amazing that you know that local marsh that local swampy area can be um so I haven't I haven't done a great deal of educational outreach to be honest, but it's something that I'm definitely finding the more like the longer I'm in research, I just think it's so fundamental. And um one of the things I did do, and this was back in the the summer of the first year of my PhD, so about a year and a half ago, um, is have you heard of Pint of Science? Yes, I have. Yeah. So I did a talk for that and um Towards the end of that, I mentioned a, a local citizen science project to do with salt marshes and blue carbon that me and a team were working on. And um, there was a, well, this this stands out for me because there was there was a lovely guy there. And um, I was in a really quite a random group, actually. Um, there was a lady who gave an amazing presentation all about um, mobile phone technology. And I was in the same group as her. And he, he said to me, actually, um, you know, that he had actually come along for the technology talk, um, but he thought mine sounded interesting, so he'd stick around and listen. And he, yeah, he couldn't believe, like, what he found out about his local salt marsh and just how amazing it was. And, you know, he asked to get inv- how he could get involved with the system science project. And that's just from listening to me babbling on for, you know, 10 minutes or 15 <laughs> minutes or however long it was, but... It's so lovely when you can see people's attitudes changing that quickly just because they they just weren't aware of something. Absolutely. Mm. Um, Scientific communication is important in all forms, but especially when it's something like this that's so 
prominent right now and so important Mm -hmm. to look at right now. And it's overwhelming. Climate science, if you don't have any background in science, and obviously climate science affects all of us, but if you don't have a background in that and you just Google like climate change or like scientific studies about climate change, I have a degree in science and I get overwhelmed with it sometimes. So being just a regular person, it's so important to look for these outreach opportunities to learn. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to have people like you who are sharing them and helping people better understand in simple ways what's going on and what's going on locally. Like it's one thing to look at this overarching, the climate is changing fact, Mm -hmm. but to look at here's what's happening in this area, your area that you're living in is so important. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think it's true what you say really. Yeah. People, people do have that interest. They just, they aren't necessarily sure about how to get involved. They don't think, you know, not because, not because they're not interested. They just believe, you know, then they can't really access that science. It's too complicated. And so, yeah, you're totally right. It's so important for that reason. And I guess on a, on like quite related note, something I feel really strongly about, which is why I absolutely love this podcast and a lot of the communities on social media at the moment is representation in STEM. So in the science, you know, the science degrees and, um, you know, just from me as like, you know, just, just an average girl who's gone, you know, followed a, a career that she absolutely loves. Like, I hope that can just help younger and even current generations of, of girls to really develop their own science identity. And, you know, they believe this is a field for them to be in. Um, so that, that actually reminds me of, um, there's this, um, I don't know what you'd call it. Well, in schools, there's this, um, it's called draw a scientist where school children are asked to, yeah, literally draw us, draw what they think of when, um, they say the word scientist. And I think that project's been going on for about 50 years or so. And, um, right back when it started, there was only, you know, one there was only 1% of school students who are drawing women. Um, I think that's so sad. And But now today we're seeing, you know, eh, there's still definitely not as many women being drawn, but um, the, cha- the change we're seeing is being driven by girls. So I think they said that there's about half of girls now draw a female scientist. You know, so they're starting to realise that this, this is a field for them if, if they'd like to go into it. And, you know, anyone can do it if they have that passion there. I love that. Is there anywhere online people can follow along with you and your research? Like, do you post your things on any social medias or anything like that? Yeah, so I have, um, I've got um, Instagram and Twitter. So, um, yeah, my Instagram, it's kind of a bit of a mixture, really. It's, I actually... You know, I started doing it when I I found myself in a bit of a slump where, you know, everything got a bit overwhelming and I didn't feel like I was enjoying myself anymore. So it was kind of my way to to talk about the wider marine environment and a bit of ocean optimism. So, you know, it started as a way for me to build my passion back up, but I've I've really enjoyed doing it actually. Um, and I definitely I'm trying to post a lot about blue carbon there because there's still not a great deal of blue carbon. Um yeah as we were saying that's quite accessible to people so I tend to do that a lot on my Instagram and that's um if you follow ocean underscore loose l-u-c-e and then um yeah I've got Twitter as well um so I post quite a lot to Twitter at the moment um and that's underscore Lucy and then 
my surname, which is, I could spell on here, it's quite tricky to spell. So I think um, <laughs> it'll be in the description of the uh, the podcast, won't it? So It will. We'll, we'll, we'll link it down below. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And we'll make sure to tag you on Instagram and everything like that. And definitely follow along because following Lucy on Instagram is actually how I personally found out about Blue Carbon and reached out to her because I was like, hey, I want to learn more. And she's so open to helping you and helping you understand things and we'll send you things. It's amazing. So if you have any questions, reach out to her. Yeah, please do. I love that. And thanks so much for having me on, Jill. I've really enjoyed it. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for joining me and teaching me all about Blue Carbon today. It's been such a great learning experience and I'm super excited (laughs) to go do more research into it. Oh, lovely. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Water and Women podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe to it. You can also follow us on all of our social medias. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also find more behind the scenes info on our website, waterwomenpodcast.ca. I am so happy to keep sharing these stories of different water women each week with you. And until next week, stay salty.